The New Testament, and especially the Gospels and the Book of Acts, has become the only standard for many modern Christians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 is often quoted to suggest that the Old Testament is no longer valid for the New Testament Christian. The Apostle Paul wrote, God has made us sufficient as ministers of the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul goes on to describe how the glory of the Old Covenant has been surpassed by the New. While this is certainly true, the question remains, does the New Testament make the Old Testament invalid? You've probably heard the question, is that in the New Testament? Perhaps you've quoted a scripture from Deuteronomy or Proverbs that demands justice or call God's people to action, and someone responds with a throwaway line that supposedly ends all debate, but that's in the Old Testament. Or perhaps you've heard this objection, when did Jesus himself ever do that? These questions crop up thousands of times a day in conversations, Bible studies, and churches all over the world. But the theological presuppositions undergirding these questions are an error. When someone asks the question, did Jesus ever do that? They're simply implying that if Jesus did not do that himself, then we aren't called to do it either. A Christian who asks, is that in the New Testament, is implying that biblical truth from Genesis to Malachi especially the law, is not binding on us today. We asked our panel the following question pertaining to the New Testament Christian and our relationship to Old Testament law. Was the New Testament church really a New Testament church? The Old Testament is the book of the New Testament church, so it's a problem to say that I'm a Christian, therefore I'm a New Testament Christian. If you open up the first page of the New Testament, what does it say? First page, first verse. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Whoa, who's David? Where did I read about him? The Old Testament? I guess so. Abraham, now, he must be New Testament, right? No, Old Testament. And so what you have when you go to the first page of this book that we call the New Testament, you have a message that says, what are you doing here? Do you know who these people are? Because I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ didn't just suddenly come onto the earth, but he has a history. He's prophesied from of old. He was promised to somebody. He comes in terms of a context, and if it could be any stronger, I don't know how it could be, because Matthew goes through a list of 14 generations, then another 14 generations, then another 14 generations. Gee, where are those people from? <gasps> the Old Testament. Well then, that's how we get started in the first book. And you go on through to the second book, Mark, and what do you have? Mark using imagery from the prophet Isaiah. Everywhere in his first chapter and then throughout the book he's using this imagery that he picks up from Isaiah's prophecy, his majestic book. Mark says, you, you have no business here until you go back and read Isaiah and read the Old Testament. Then you can understand what I'm talking about. <clears throat> the whole m the material foundation of Jesus' ministry was that this is what is written about me in, the, in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So consequently, even if you want to call yourself a New Testament Christian, what does the New Testament tell you? The New Testament tells you, go back to the Old Testament. Now that's just the beginning. When you go through the book of Acts, in their discussion as to what the pivotal change in 
administrations is as we come into this new world that's come about because of Christ's work what is the critical change is it that the Old Testament's no longer valid or functional no it's that Gentiles can become Jews without becoming Jews that is they can become Jews without being circumcised and that means that the distinctive peculiarities that were associated with the Jewish people before Christ are no longer binding upon Gentiles. And so this gospel that was located in Israel and that was acted out every day in the sacrifice of the temple service, in the work of the priests, in the offerings, in the feasts, in the calendars, and so on and so forth, these things now have come to rest in Jesus Christ about whom they always spoke. They were always looking forward to him. There, was, there were arrows all along the way pointing. Look to Jesus to find the meaning of this sacrifice. Look to Jesus to find the meaning of this service in the temple, this priesthood. Now Jesus has come. The meaning has come. He's taken it all up in himself. He's gone up into heaven. There is a temple. There is a kingdom. There is a city. There is a church there. And now on earth you have outposts of what's happened in heaven, the final fullness that's there anywhere on earth. And that's the big difference. The law didn't change. The Old Testament didn't change. God's morality didn't change. God didn't suddenly say, well, now that my son has done his work, it's okay if you don't worship me. It's okay if you have other gods. It's okay if you have no day of rest. It's okay if you commit adultery. It's okay if you commit murder. God's values didn't change. They're eternal. The Lord never changes. He never varies. What happened in the New Testament is that this law has shed those things which kept it local and has gone up to heaven and from heaven is poured down on the whole world. The best way to think about the Old Testament is not Old Test the Bible is not Old Testament, New Testament. The best way to think about the Bible is that it is one book. It has an anticipation and a working out in history prior to Christ, and then the final chapter is written in the New Testament. I know it's 27 books. We call it 27 books, but it's really the last chapter of the Old Testament. The New, Church, the New Testament Church's book was the Old Testament. When Paul wrote to Timothy... He told him about the scriptures that he had known from childhood, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, how could that be if that's for the Jews and not for Christians? To be wise for salvation in Jesus Christ sounds pretty Christian to me. You know, it's interesting to note, if you read the book of Acts, that is that romantic book pastors like to preach from. We go back there all the time preaching out of the book of Acts, and we get all pumped up and we preach about the mighty deeds that Paul did, and, and Silas and Stephen, even the deacon, uh, was used of God to effect mighty miracles. But what's instructive for us to remember about the book of Acts, Eric, is this. You don't find the word love one time in the book of Acts. Did you know that? You don't find the word piety one time in all of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. What you will find in the book of Acts is 114 references to words like this. Riots, uproars, tumult, sword, persecution, and peril. Now the thinking pastor, realizing that, if he's a sincere seeker of truth, will begin to ask himself a couple questions. Starting with, what were they doing that we're not doing? Uh, 
If we could answer questions like that truthfully, we will realize that what the church did back then was they went everywhere, and as they went, they preached an unapologetic gospel of Jesus Christ that went well beyond personal salvation and my personal Jesus and my fire insurance, and they insisted upon the crown rights of King Jesus. For Paul says in Acts 17, there is another God, or another king, rather, one Jesus. And that was a political statement. It was a political statement. It was the beginning of what we call Noxian social theory. That is this idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough to affect change in the real world where they really kill babies, where they really sodomize our sons, and where they really enact public policy detrimental to our health and well-being. You see, if you hold to a covenantal worldview, you understand that God has established three what we call monopolistic institutions on the face of the earth. He's established the family, the church, and the state. Now, they are all distinct, and they all have, according to God and under God, their own spheres of influence. But what we realize now, and what we forgot for so many years, was this, that they are all under the same standard. That standard is called the law word of God. And it is the responsibility of the church to fulfill its prophetic and Levitical role in time and history. And what does that role consist of? It consists of teaching the civil magistrate what God has said about ethical moral manners, or matters rather, and it is to be prophetic when the civil magistrate, through its incorrigible attitude, says, we will not have that man to reign over us. And so, if we realize those things and embrace those things, we realize that, A, we have just declared war in time and history to all those who will not bow the knee to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've issued the declaration of war, and if we're smart enough, we will realize there will be a cost to fulfilling this great commission. Jesus asked his disciples to pray that your name, Father, would be honored on earth as it is in heaven and that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, and your will, stated in the scriptures, would be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we know is that Jesus could not have meant, ah, but disciples. None of this is supposed to happen for 2,000 years until I come. You're supposed to pray this prayer for 2,000 years, but expect none of it to happen until I come. Nobody in their right theological mind would claim, really, that that's what he meant. We know that he had to mean that very year, that part, that century, they were supposed to try to start getting the Roman Empire to have become a situation where God's name was honored, his will was done, his kingdom was coming. And they pulled it off almost by accident. They actually did it. They actually did it. I mean, they did. They came a long direction in coming from a persecuted minority under a one-world government where they were killing them officially by the state to actually running the Roman Empire. Augustus Caesar was considered the son of God and was the, the savior of the world in the first century according to Roman statements, Roman writing. And on a, there was a coin it would be a coin that they were used to, that they saw regularly, those Sanhedrin men. It had an image of Augustus Caesar. On the back it said, there is salvation in none other than Augustus, 
and there is no other name given among men by which they may be saved. That was a direct quote from a Roman coin that Peter was giving them in Acts 4.12 and essentially saying, gentlemen, what we're trying to tell you is there is a new world emperor on earth now, political, legal emperor that your Caesar must bow to or he is out of touch with reality. The battle in America is between two ideas or notions, and it is the lordship of Jesus Christ versus the authority of the state or Caesar. And that's really always been the question. Even in Christ's day, in the Gospels we see that the issue is always framed around what allegiance do we owe to Caesar, what are our duties, and what allegiance do we owe to Christ. And really, Romans 13 gives us the parameter or the filter by which we are to judge our actions in this way. Romans 13 declares what kind of civil magistrate or what kind of elected official is authored or endorsed by God. And it says that this kind of civil magistrate, be he a monarch, a king, a parliamentarian, a congressman, a president, he must affirm God's law and he must punish wickedness and affirm and even reward righteousness. That's the kind of civil magistrate we are to obey. However, if the civil magistrate becomes tyranny to God's ways and in fact punishes righteousness and rewards wickedness, Christians, by virtue of their call to obey God's law word in every jot and tittle, by His grace, Christians must be resolved to resist tyranny and to stand against such injustice. While there was no implicit call to revolt or to resist the tyranny of Rome by Paul, the fact that they gave us that filter in Romans 13 actually was a defense of the civil disobedience of the early church. The very preaching of the gospel, the serving of Christ as the Lord of the nations, as, as, as he being God alone and not the Caesar cult, that was an act of civil disobedience. That's the reason why the Christians were persecuted and hounded and sent to the catacombs and uh, put into the Colosseums and the fierce competition and the persecutions of Imperial Rome. It was the fact that they were not obeying the Caesar cult. And so Romans 13 is a defense of the gospel, yes, but when we act upon the gospel, when we preach the gospel, when we live the gospel, it is inevitably going to bring us in conflict with Caesar or the state that would be God. Now, we look throughout the book of Acts and we see the apostles, the diaconate, and simple Christians being brought before civil magistrates, giving an account for their faith, and the apostle Paul is one of these. And the question comes down to, when it's Christ versus Caesar, is it better that we obey God and his law or man? And that really is the issue between Christ and Caesar. And on that, there can be no neutrality. If we consistently live the gospel, preach the gospel, demonstrate the gospel, even the idea of rescuing babies. The early church were taking abandoned babies, the babies that were left under the bridge abutment to die by Roman paganism. They were taking them as their own, adopting them and raising them in the faith. That was against Roman law. And so a true gospel expression will always bring us into conflict, not with the civil magistrate that God ordains, but with the civil magistrate who seeks to dethrone God and become God himself. Consider what Paul was doing, offerings 
to alleviate the poverty of the saints during the famine in Palestine. Counseling that the needy be cared for, but he that will not work, let him not eat. So this was a very strict premise. We do know that anyone who became unemployed was given by the church deacons three days income. After that, they found work for him. Another Christian would hire him, but at lower than his normal pay, so there would be no incentive to stay on that diaconal care. We know from 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, don't go to the civil courts, they're ungodly. Create your own courts. And they did. And they were so efficient that, after a while, pagans were coming to the church courts and saying, adjudicate our problems for us. It takes years to get a case heard in the civil courts, and it bankrupts us, and then we don't get justice. Would you do it for us? When Constantine became emperor, he called in the bishops, and he said, the courts of the empire are failing. We have cases that have been in the courts 40 years with no justice. I want all of you men to wear, when you go out on the streets, the garb of a Roman magistrate by my orders, so that the people of Rome, of the empire, will know that they can come to you for justice. Well, that's where the bishop's garb comes from. And unless a bishop has heard me lecture on the subject, they don't know where their own bishop's garb originates. Then the deacons took care of the sick. They took care of the poor, of the orphans, of widows, of needy peoples generally of captives, because as the Roman Empire began to break down, pirates and lawless bands would take men for ransom, hold them captive. One bishop in the early church ransomed 15,000 captives. When Rome fell for six centuries, the only courts of Europe were the church courts of arbitration. And Rome was gone. The government, the state, was gone. But Europe had justice because the church provided it. Now, this was the pattern through much of the Middle Ages. It was the pattern of the Reformation. I have written, as you know, on Calvin in Geneva and the uh, work of the diaconate there, two offerings taken every Sunday, one for the work of the deacons, so that all the needy were cared for. So that, apart from crime, the church, through these diaconal courts and through various independent Christian agencies, provided for the basic government of the community. It's kind of fun to listen to Christians say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, first of all, what other kind of Christian is there? But second of all, the early church had nothing but the Old Testament. 
the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, the Old Testament lies open in the New. And for us to think that we can enjoy and understand and practice the Christian religion with just Matthew to Revelation is foolishness. Paul said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished for all good works. If someone doesn't know their Old Testament, they don't have right doctrine, they don't have right uh, correction, and they can't be thoroughly equipped for good works. Imagine Timothy getting a letter from Paul, 2 Timothy, and he reads, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and, and it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and instruction in righteousness so that you, Timothy, can be thoroughly equipped for all good works. And then Timothy sets that letter down, and what's he got on his desk? I mean, a pocket New Testament? No, he had Genesis to Malachi. When Paul wrote that, he was speaking about the Old Testament. There have been a lot of times when people have come up to me and said, where is that in red letters, Brother Terry? You know, speaking of the words of Jesus. To which I say, the words of Jesus start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and go all the way through the book of Revelation. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Don't bring this false dichotomy that the words of Jesus are only the ones that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and maybe one of the Corinthian letters. This is silliness. The words of Christ, the words of God, are found in the whole Bible. And if you want to understand Jesus, if you want to know Jesus, you have to study the whole Bible. Christian duty is not defined solely by the words in red. Christian duty is defined by Genesis to Revelation. Jesus himself said, don't think I've come to destroy the law. He said, I've come to fulfill it. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away. In fact, Jesus said something very interesting. He said, anybody who teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, but someone who says you don't have to obey the commandments will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus was actually prophesying the debate and the problem that his church has had about the law of God. And it, he didn't say that if you attack the law of God, you're not saved or you're not a Christian. He just said you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow of turning with God the Father. True, we are under a glorious new covenant, sealed in divine blood. It's true that the new covenant is far superior to the old, but part of the new covenant is the promise of God to write the law on our hearts. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Why should we try and dismiss what God wants to write on our hearts? The whole Bible is the sword of the Spirit. We don't want to go into battle with three-quarters of our sword broken off, do we? Obviously, portions of the law are no longer practiced today because Christ has come. Obviously, our justification before God is through faith, but faith without works is dead. Obviously, certain portions of the law have been superseded by the New Testament, but only in the light of the whole counsel of God will we be able to provide biblical solutions to the problems confronting our culture today. Problems relating to economics, politics, education, medicine, 
justice, crime, because the Bible addresses them all flawlessly. The standards, warnings, and solutions God gave to Moses, King David, King Solomon, or the prophets are far superior over anything that liberal humanists can ever offer.